0: Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We greet you here in the Nave of Marsh Chapel at 735 Commonwealth Avenue. We greet also our radio listeners on WBUR 90.9 FM throughout New England and streaming on the internet around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome especially this morning the Reverend Dr. David Jacobson as he preaches the Uh, last of our guest sermons of our summer preacher series. Dean Hill will be back next week to preach the concluding sermon uh, for the last Sunday of August. Now, let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive, thankfully, the fruits of this redeeming work and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Father, you are always present. Forgive us for not reflecting your faithfulness. Jesus, you are always self-giving. Forgive us for living for ourselves. Holy Spirit, you always lead us forward. Forgive us for holding back. Let us offer prayers of silent confession as we meditate on the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God.
1: Here now a reading from 1 Kings, where Solomon encounters the divine in a dream and awakes into wisdom. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David. Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the principal high place and Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child, and I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered Or counted. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people able to discern between good and evil for who can govern this your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this and God said to him because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all of your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life.
0: A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to the God and Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Please join me in reading responsively Psalm 111 with the Antiphon. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty are the works of the Lord, whose righteousness endures forever. Who has gained renown by his wonderful deeds, the Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord provides food for those who fear him and is ever mindful of his covenant. The Lord has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is God's name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The praise of the Lord endures forever. Now, beloved, rise up in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Deo, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn.
3: The holy gospel of our lord Jesus Christ according to Saint Mark chapter 15 verses 33 to 41 Glory to you lord. When it was noon darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon At 3 o'clock Jesus cried out with a loud voice Eloi Eloi lema sabachthani which means my god my god Why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, for he is calling for Elisha. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord. Please be seated. Today is the next-to-last sermon in a series of sermons called Apocalypse Then. Many of you have been listening patiently for about a month and a half to sermons about the meaning of the apocalypse and apocalyptic texts. And so today, with this final next-to-last sermon, I can definitively say, the end is near. Apocalypse, then, has been a series of sermons devoted to understanding what apocalyptic texts meant in their own day as a prelude to hearing what they might mean today. A series like this is needed because we live in a culture fascinated by the more lurid and spectacular features of apocalypses. The four horsemen of the book of Revelation, rapture texts, and being left behind— or the cosmic conflagration of Armageddon. What we've been uncovering in these sermons is that apocalypses have actually influenced a lot of New Testament literature beyond Daniel and Revelation, including Paul's letters and the Gospels themselves. In fact, to speak of Jesus as resurrected from the dead is already an apocalyptic claim. Over the last several weeks, this series of sermons has helped us to see past the more spectacular facade, to see how apocalyptic has affected the way we Christians speak our good news. Last week, I made the case that we need to think carefully, not just about what apocalypses portray, but what they do. Apocalypse comes from a Greek word meaning to reveal to unveil. The proper focus of apocalypses and of any apocalyptic writing is to reveal something about God and God's purposes. In fact, what they reveal about God is usually disclosed as a way of gaining a transcendent perspective on a difficult situation or a living anomaly. It can be tempting to read the more spectacular features of apocalyptic writings and fixate on those more vivid characteristics like seven seals, the end of the world, or beasts with mysteriously numbered names. We miss the point spectacularly, however, when we don't get at the purposes of those apocalyptic writings, and that purpose goes deep. Apocalypses do what they say. They reveal, and they reveal God amidst difficult circumstances. So today, with this next-to-last sermon, we turn not to an apocalypse, but a gospel writing profoundly influenced by apocalyptic ways of thinking. Mark's gospel and the death of Jesus in chapter 15. I intend to recount the death of Jesus and highlight its apocalyptic character. Now... As many times as we've heard this story, we might think this idea to be counterintuitive. We usually associate the death of Jesus on the cross with Lent. Jesus' death is usually about my personal sin, my guilt, and Jesus' heroic, sacrificial endurance of pain and torture for my sake. For as long as we can remember this Lenten orientation to Jesus' death, has always been personal and had no trace of this cosmic end-of-the-world stuff. The cross is lent and Jesus' death for me, but apocalypses, well, we've always imagined there's something quite different. But as soon as we look closely at our text, Mark 15, we see already that Jesus' death does not really conform to expectations. And this is just as true today as it was in the ancient world. In fact, Yale professor Adela Yarborough Collins helps us by comparing Jesus' death in Mark to other understandings of death in the Greco-Roman world and in the religious orbit of early Judaism and even the Christianity that emerged out of it. Professor Collins points out that the Greco-Roman world placed much stock on stories of what they called noble death. The classic example is the death of the philosopher Socrates. We may recall that that great philosopher ran afoul of the leaders of the city of Athens. Socrates was accused of impiety and corrupting the youth of his city. As a philosopher, Socrates intends to lead a consequential life. He has questioned openly the assumptions of his fellow citizens and invites them to open dialogue about the truth that they claim to know. But, having alienated them in the pursuit of that truth, Socrates willingly accepts the verdict they give. Socrates should die. In a surprising scene, refusing all attempts at exile, Socrates willingly drinks the hemlock that kills him. And he does so in a way that freely and openly welcomes death in the presence of his students. The death of the philosopher, accepted freely and willingly, becomes a type in the ancient world of noble death. While not parallel, well, well, not identical, there is an interesting parallel to be found in the literature of early Judaism and emerging Christianity. In the centuries before Christ, there is the story of the Jewish Maccabees who resist the Greek tendencies of their context. When a certain Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes demanded that Jews give up certain religious practices around Sabbath, circumcision, and especially diet, the Maccabees became known for their resistance to the Greeks. One of the Book of the Maccabees recalls the resistance of a mother and her seven sons who were threatened with torture and loss of life if they failed to relinquish their ancient Jewish ways. The stories in this text are graphic for their portrayal of their torture, but what makes them remarkable is the nearly joyful way in which the successive members of this family hold to their faith in the face of the most awful treatment at the hands of their Greek overlords. Their martyrdom, their strong, joyful witness, becomes a religious model for dealing with suffering and death. In death, they become virtuous examples. These summaries from the ancient world from Professor Collins are helpful. They help us understand ways in which people dealt with death in the literature of that time. But the story of Jesus is so different from those. Mark does not recount Jesus' death as something like a Greek philosopher's noble death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the previous chapter, Jesus resolves to follow his Father's will, a noble thing to be sure. Yet Jesus also prays in garden darkness, that this cup passed from him. The night before his death, Jesus still hopes and prays for a different outcome than death. It is, in his eyes, decisively unwelcome. As for Jesus' death itself, it's not the same as that of the serene philosopher's death. Jesus cries out twice on the cross. The second time, a wordless shout that marks his death. Jesus dies not with his disciples close by either, but alone. The only ones of his supporters present, women who are afraid even to stand close by. Whatever Jesus' death is in Mark 15, it's not like the noble death of Socrates. What may be more surprising is that Jesus' death in Mark is also not the same as the virtual example of a martyr's death. Jesus' death is not described in Mark like those of the Maccabean martyrs or even later Christian martyrs who marched to their deaths before the empire's torturers and executioners in confident faith for all to see. Jesus' death is marked by cries and shouts, The first one, not a confession of faith, but a cry of abandonment to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus dies not with words of trusting faith, but with desperate cries of being God-forsaken. Mark even underscores this point with his mention of the timing. Jesus' death on the cross is a relatively brief one. While crucifixion was a public, torturous, slow asphyxiation on the cross, Jesus' death did not last for days, as many such victims did. Jesus dies surprisingly quickly. While Jesus did resolve to go through death in obedience to God's will, the mode of his death was not like the martyr's virtuous examples either. Why? Why would Mark describe Jesus' death in this way? Why would Mark portray Jesus' death not as noble, but ignoble, scandalous? What is going on here at the cross? Just what is Jesus' death about? Well, in Mark, in Mark, the cross is an apocalyptic moment. It's an occasion for apocalyptic revelation. Last week, we already saw how it works. Last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his gospel in Mark. In that text, Jesus emerges from the waters of Jordan only to see the heavens above him ripped open. A heavenly dove descends, a cosmic symbol of God's brooding over the waters of creation... And then a heavenly voice addresses Jesus, You are my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. A heavenly tear, a cosmic symbol, and a voice announcing God's Son, these made for an apocalyptic theophany right there in Mark 1. Well now, here at the foot of Jesus' cross, Mark describes the scene of Jesus' death. Here, the temple veil is ripped from top to bottom. The voice of the centurion acclaims Jesus, God's Son, and a cosmic symbol is once again given. As Jesus dies on the cross, from noon until three, the whole world is cast in apocalyptic darkness. Mark wants us to understand. Jesus' cross is no heroic death, no virtuous example. It is nothing less than the apocalyptic turning of the ages, an apocalyptic revelation from God. As Jesus dies on the cross, it is accompanied with a cosmic sign attested from the prophet Amos, who wrote, on that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. In a strange, cosmic, apocalyptic sign, The world goes dark in the shadow of the cross. God's judgment appears, yes, but also creation's mourning for an only son. This death of Jesus is not about nobility or virtue. It's a paradoxical sign of the turning of the ages, revealing the depth of divine love precisely in human weakness. How did Canadian theologian Douglas John Hall put it? Again, I'll paraphrase. God's revealing is simultaneously an unveiling and availing. God conceals God's self under the opposite of what both religion and reason imagine God to be, namely the almighty, the majestic, transcendent, the absolutely other. God's otherness is not to be found in God's absolute distance from us, but in God's willed and costly proximity to us. Mark's gospel does not explain Jesus' death. It's too concise and taciturn for that, but instead reveals God through Jesus' death in a strange apocalyptic theophany like Amos' day of the Lord. It's hard to wrap our heads around, but in Jesus' God-forsaken, tragic, ignoble death, a painfully human and fragile death, God is there. Princeton's Clifton Black, in his commentary on this Markan text, cites Nathan Glasser's shock and Passover Haggadah, where Glatzer describes some words found On a cellar wall in Cologne, where Jews once hid from Nazis, it goes like this. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when he is silent. According to Mark, Black says, so also did Jesus believe at the moment of his death. Jesus' death is revealed, therefore, as part of this old passing age. For three hours, darkness reigns on earth at noon. Jesus' death is judgment. It is cosmic mourning. It is the final rage of a creation gone awry. Then when Jesus dies, the darkness has already receded. The temple veil rips as a sign of the boundary-breaking God's changed relationship with humanity. And the centurion, the Roman centurion of all people, confesses faith in Jesus as God's Son. Mark's apocalyptic portrayal of the cross looks like this. Whatever signs of newness, of God's intention to remake the world, emerge from these deep shadows of the incalculable revelation of the cross. This also means we need to put aside some of our traditional theologizing here. Mark's portrayal is not about satisfying an angry, wrathful God. Mark's story is not about moral examples to be followed. It's not even necessarily about paying a ransom to the devil. Mark's recounting of the cross is just too compact and lacks sensationalism for any of that. Instead, Jesus' death is the turning of the ages, a revelation of God where God should not be, in the midst of death doing a new thing. This notion, this apocalyptic gospel is counterintuitive but a profound one at the very heart of Christianity's cruciform faith. Theologian Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, "'Only grief permits newness.'" Mark's gospel of an apocalyptic cross is therefore not just an orientation to a past event, but a costly opening to God's future, a new age, that draws us in our lives forward even amidst death's deepest shadows. Toward the end of his life, in his winter years, the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright was asked which of his buildings he designed was his favorite. He said, the next one. It may not seem like much, but a vision of the dawning new age empowers us even in the midst of the deathly hold of the old one. It's a promise you can hold on to even in the darkness of the cross. In his book on the Christian funeral, Emery's Tom Long recalls an interesting practice of resistance among slaves in the 19th century. Long writes... During the time of slavery in the southern United States, slave owners were known to take Bibles away from slave preachers, fearing that the biblical message was stirring up insurrection. There are moving accounts of these preachers standing beside open graves and leading funerals, reciting scripture from memory while holding open folded hands as if they were cradling a Bible. Well, it seems all we have is a promise and open hands. Yet I suspect Jesus would understand. When he cries out on the cross, he laments before God his own abandonment My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words he uses are the familiar ones from Psalm 22. In that moment, we see Jesus sharing in the most radical, God-forsaken state of what it means to be a human being in the face of injustice, abandonment, and death. Yet, as Professor Collins points out elsewhere, absolute despair, she says, is actually a retreat to silence. Jesus shouts, yes, yes but he shouts to God. Jesus cries out, yes, but he cries out to God. Jesus speaks words of God-forsakenness on the cross, yes, but he speaks them to God. In doing so, his lament itself is a form of holding on to the promise His complaint to God makes no sense unless he holds up the promise to God and asks, is it still good? Is it? The cry, the shout, the God-forsakenness all belong there because lament is the flip side of a life lived according to the apocalyptic promise. In his book, Meditations of the Heart, BU's own Howard Thurman expanded this idea even further to include human encounter with death as a whole. Thurman writes, The glorious thing about man's encounter with death is that fact that what a man discovers about the meaning of life as he lives it need not undergo any change as he meets death. It is a final tribute to the character of an individual's living if he can die unshriven, But full blown as he lived. Such a man, says Thurman, such a man goes down to his grave with a shout. At Jesus' death, at his apocalyptic death, things are revealed for what they really are. It's not about nobility or virtue, it's about the turning of the ages and the strange, mysterious place that speaks from death and yet bears witness, shouting witness to the promise. It is the strange, shadowy place of God's new creation.
0: turn our hearts and minds to prayer i would invite you to remain standing to be seated to kneel or to come to the communion rail according to your tradition as we join in our call to prayer lead me lord With all our heart and with all our mind, let us pray to the Lord, saying, Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, for the loving kindness of God, and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the world, for the welfare of the Holy Church of God, and for the unity of all peoples, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our dean and for all the clergy and people, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the leaders of the nations and for all in authority, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this city of Boston, for every city and community, and for those who live in them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For seasonable weather and for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the good earth which God has given us, and for the wisdom and will to conserve it, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the aged and infirm, for the widows and orphans, and for the sick and the suffering let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For all who have died in the hope of the resurrection and for all the departed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. That we may end our lives in faith and hope, without suffering and without reproach, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. In the communion of all the saints, let us commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God. To thee, O Lord our God. Almighty God, by the hand of Mark the Evangelist, who have given to your church the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we thank you for this witness and pray that we may be firmly grounded in its truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. The peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel this beautiful Sunday morning. We would invite you to put your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew and to pass that book along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. As the semester fast approaches, we would encourage you to keep an eye to the chapel website, bu.edu chapel, for all of our upcoming services and activities, as well as the opportunity for online giving. We would invite you to meditate upon Ludovico da Viadana's setting of Psalm 33, Exultate Justi, as the ushers wait upon us for our offering this morning. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
1: in this time of offering, may we bring the fullness of ourselves formed from your love in gift and pledge to you. Bless our resources that they may weave relationships of healing and wholeness far beyond our singular circles of influence. And bless our abilities that we may creatively embody your justice, mercy, and peace in the dailiness of life. Amen. Now please continue to stand as you are able and join us in hymn number 68, When in our music God is glorified.
3: Let us now go forth from this place as those who bear witness to the turning of the ages in Jesus' cross, that we might pass from that darkness into the light of God's new creation. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.